from India's largest newsroom. I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. During the Gujarat state election campaign, Congress President Mallikarjuna Kharge caused a flutter when he asked whether Prime Minister Narendra Modi was like Ravan. Not surprisingly, the BJP didn't take very kindly to that statement. उन्होंने माननीय प्रधानमंत्री श्री नरेंद्र मोदी जी को रावण कहा है और मुझे लगता है इससे बड़ी दृष्टता इस प्रकार के भाषा का प्रयोग इस प्रकार का गाली गलोच अपने प्रधानमंत्री के लिए करना और वह भी गुजरात के सपूत के लिए ऐसे शब्दों का प्रयोग गुजरात में खड़े होकर करना यह उचित नहीं है My colleague Jairaj Singh asked mythologist and author Devdutt Patnaik whether being called Ravan really amounts to a slur. So Devdutt if if uh, someone were to call me Ravan uh, is it something I should take offense to? Well, I don't know. It doesn't sound offensive. It's just like a name. It's like a theatrical name. It's not a galeen. I don't think anybody has used it as a. Um, you know, there are far more horrible words to use. Ravan, I wouldn't get offended by Ravan. I'd be surprised, and maybe, like, why would you call me Ravan? I mean, it's not like a term of abuse the way other names are. Which gods or goddesses are used, or demons are used for, a terms of abuse? I'm just thinking about it now that you're asking me. I'm just wondering which name would people throw. तू तो कंस है तू तो दुर्योधन है नन ऑफ दम साउंडफुल वर्ड टू से इज इट इंटरेस्टिंग आई कॉन्ट यूज अमोनिक नेम लाइक तू तो महिषासुर है इट डेरी ड्रामेटिकर्न है देर समथिंग क्यूट अबाउट कुंभकर्ण है बट आई एम जस्ट थिंकिंग सुरपनखा Yeah, but I don't know. But those are you know women, kai uh, kai. No, I don't. It's very funny now that you're saying bakasur. Bakasur could be quite, but tu to bakasur hai. But I know whenever I'm saying it, even as I'm saying it, I'm feeling like laughing. There's almost a childlike, you know, bakasur. These words have this kind of a children's books, uh, almost an endearing insult. Oh, tu to kumbhakaran hai. um you know i am i'm not seeing them as something uh, where i want to hurt you which is the purpose of hurting you i can't think of it i don't know now that you're saying it it's it's making me think and i'm just wondering you won't say vritra tu to vitra hai tu to pisachini hai it's the kind of the ghost and bhoot preet or something like that but um, no it's funny no when you think about it we all know the basics about ravan the bad guy of the ramayan the king of lanka the abductor of sita and finally killed by lord ram but as devdat patnaik points out in today's episode ravan was also a very educated king of high privilege the tale of ravan is actually a cautionary one 
Devdutt Patnaik tells Jairaj and me how Ravan is viewed in Indian mythology as well as the lessons to take from his life and death. Devdutt in Indian mythology would you say anyone occupies that sort of position of an arc villain like Ravana and like who's now become this sort of embodiment of evil in our collective view? Well Ravan is popular as a villain. uh but you know there are e- e- even darker villains like for me kans is a da- more disturbing villain because he kills babies i mean like you can't get worse than that but i somehow it doesn't capture the popular imagination as much but ravan is a, a sort of i think there's something about ravan which are people have a they sort of admire him they have a love hate relationship with him and a little confused about him also even though his name evokes um you know as in he's a villainous character there's also a great amount of awe when it comes to his mystique right yes yes that's true in fact if you see the ramayan sagar the old ramayan sagar ramayan the introduction of ravan was considered one of the finest it was like this grand entry of a villain which you know was almost like oh my god you're talking about story of god but the villain gets this great entrance if even now when you watch it with the music and the even with you know the old special effects they're showing him as a musician they're showing him as as an intellectual they're showing him as a powerful um so it's quite quite an uh, quite an entry and i think many actors also have heard uh, love playing ravan because it's complex and it's uh, you have an intellectual villain who is also a brute who is also aggressive and he's brahmins you know something about indian brahmins right um, indians have this love hate relationship with brahmins um, and he falls into that category i know there are a lot of brahmin communities which worship him and there is a part of their ritual practice where he is worshiped um and so ravan does uh, is a more complex character you know a villain would be reducing him um indian stories are not that uh, it's not like mahishasur where his purpose is only to trouble the gods and be killed by durga or you know tarakasur or one of those asuras who just exist to be killed there's a larger narrative here um even mahabharat you have these like kichakavada kichaka is a very disturbing character and there there is nothing redeeming about him because he is a sexual abuser ravan is while yes he is someone who deny you know drags a married woman into his home and yes but there's something more to him that i think captures the imagination of storytellers he also has, comes from interesting lineology you know his parents like a inter community um his yeah. parents are you know you have a brahman father and a and a rakshas mother tell us a little bit about that so um i think um, when the stories were being written now we know that the manuscripts that we have as i keep telling people is 300 bce because the old ramayan manuscripts mention china and china as a country uh, as a existing thing we india becomes familiar with them only around 200 bce not before that so these manuscripts are clearly written after that period but they're talking obviously an older story which we don't have any other proof of it but um 
you can make a wild guess that the story is about a Vedic culture which thrived between 1000 BCE and 500 BCE in the Gangetic Plain. Lower Gangetic Plains towards Bihar because it refers to Janak and Mithila. And um, obviously this is a time when the Aryan men are marrying local women. That's one thing we know. And they're obviously engaging with people and other communities around. And some are friendly, some are not friendly. And therefore you have these words like Vanara, uh, Riksha, which is monkeys and birds. And obviously are they tribal totems? We aren't completely sure. Um, but we also know of Brahmin men or at least the Rishis who are performing this Vedic Yajna, marrying these women and one of them being Vaishrava. And Vaishrava is marrying one of these women and that's the genealogy from which Ravan emerges. He comes from southern part. The word Lanka is used, uh, which we confuse with Sri Lanka. It's Lanka basically means an island. It could be in a river island, most probably a river island. Probably a river island in the Narmada because the Valmiki Ramayana really doesn't talk about anything below Godavari. Um, and that's only if you look at it as a historical record. We really don't. It could be poetic imagination for all we know. It's very strange for Valmiki to compose poetry where the villain is he very clearly saying that he's descending from Brahma. He comes from Paulatsya. He has a very illustrious lineage. This need to show that this man comes from a good lineage is... Uh, interesting. Is it poetic? Why is he using this? Why does he need? Why is he not making him monstrous and frightening and ugly? He's really making him almost noble and saying, you know, he comes from the same far. His paternity can be same as Kubera, who is the god of uh, wealth and power, and in the so he's obviously um, a kind of a prototype creature linked to the gods, linked to sages, and linked to uh, other communities. I mean, these are all speculative. We really don't know. I mean, these are good Chai Pe Charcha kind of conversations, but we don't know. So that's the lineage. You know, this, there is this Valmiki who is our source. He is the poet who tells us the story. It clearly has a kind of a need to admire this villain. Um, or not admire at least, or give him a pedestal. So, uh, the picture you seem to paint of him, that is almost like a bit of an anti-hero, right? Where he is somebody you can sort of identify with, but at the same time has this quality that makes him also a villain of sorts. And uh, you've written this story of when he's dying and Ram tells Lakshman to go and seek his knowledge from him. Could you talk about that story? You know, I think it's a classic case of don't confuse that knowledgeable man is a nice man. That's the lesson that I get when I read the Ravan story. It's about a man who is glamorous. So he's, he's glamorous and therefore evokes envy. He's rich, he's powerful, he's educated. He has everything that we really aspire for. Well-educated, good family, good lineage, strong man, powerful man, um... Uh, rich uh, but not a good man you know that's important and it's in a way that's what Valmiki is trying to tell you he's trying to tell you that you know he's not a good man and therefore what is the definition of a good man a rich man a powerful man educated that means he's privileged in every sense of the term uh, but he's not a good man and he's not a good king and he's not a good husband and he's not a good brother. And I think that is a point that is being beautifully uh, constructed. 
it's a folk tale about when Ravan is dying. Ram says that, you know, the king, he's dying. I have defeated the enemy. I have nothing against Ravan. He was, he, I didn't agree with what he was doing. I was trying to negotiate peace. He, he brought it down to war. Okay, I had to kill him. I don't disrespect him. So now they're throwing the personality of Ram. And they're saying that, you know, Rav, uh, Lakshman, please go and, you know, ask him for some knowledge. He has a lot of knowledge. And the one thing you can't leave behind is knowledge. You can leave behind your wealth, your power, your weapons, your armies. But you can't, your knowledge goes with you. Obviously, this is an oral tradition. They didn't have books. so <laughs> And so Lakshman goes and uh, Ravan refuses to teach him anything and Lakshman gets very angry and tells his brother he's an arrogant man doesn't refuses to give his knowledge even though he's dying and Ram says where did you stand while asking him the question and Lakshman says well I stood at doesn't think about it and then realize he was standing at the head near the head and looking straight at him and Ram goes and then goes to the foot where Ravan is lying and bows and says you know humbly requests him to give knowledge and they say that Ravan was moved at that moment because he felt um, this is the villain he's seeing for the first time. And look, the guy's bowing to him and asking him, please tell me something. But it's also interesting because it reminds us that Ravan is an arrogant man. He will only give you knowledge when you bow down adequately. And it's almost as if Ram knows this, is indulging this child, this petulant child who even at death is not gracious and generous. And um, I think that's the point being made in all these stories, which unfortunately I'm surprised people don't catch. They think it's the nobility of Ravan. I said, no, it's a petulance of Ravan. They're showing this petulant man. That's a consistent theme in Ramayana and Mahabharata. It's about people who don't let go. And in, in, from a philosophical point of view, we use the word attachment in, you know, those who listen to Vedanta, all those Gurujis will keep saying, don't be attached, don't be attached, but they don't really know what it means. Ravan is a classic example of that. Someone who doesn't let go of his pride, even till the last minute won't let go. He's, and uh, letting go is very important in Indian philosophy. It's called aparigraha, not clinging on to things you have, being generous, being easy with giving away things, not attaching identity to your knowledge, power, position, status, wealth. And that's a very important theme in Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, all of them. Globally, an important theme, I feel. Um, and I think uh, the poet Ra uh, Valmiki very brilliantly is drawing attention to this, that, you know, this man has everything. He's the privileged beyond the privilege, but he wants everything and doesn't see he's such a narcissist. That personality trait of someone who's super privileged, but not but clingy and needy and graspy is what I see when I think of Ravan. What do you make of his ten heads? This um, is it more allegorical or is it is it literal? So the Jain scriptures are very clear. The Jain scriptures one of the earliest ones which sort of, um, to want for a better word, more rational. They don't like magical things, at least wherever required. So the earliest uh, Ramayans, the, uh, they're known as, uh, uh, Ram is known as Padma. Centuries after Valmiki Ramayans text appears, you have the Jain Ramayans. And one of the comments that I think uh, one of the Vimal Suri, I think, makes the comment uh, is that Ram, Ravan obviously did not have ten heads. He had a Nolakahar, which is the, uh, you know, nine very, uh, with nine precious jewels. And his face would be reflected in nine of the jewels. And therefore, there were nine reflections of his face and nine plus one is ten. And therefore, he was called the ten-headed one. 
It's a very old historical school of mythology, which I find very interesting. You have it in the Jain scriptures. In fact, the Jain scriptures also say there were no such thing as Vanar monkeys. These were men carrying flags with the images of monkeys on it. The Jains sort of uh, just explained Ravan in this way. Ravan is a revered figure in uh, Jainism as well as Buddhism. I think it's also because the Hindus like uh, see him as a villain, the Buddhists and the Jains who are rivals of the Hindus decide to give him an elevated position. But they can't look down on Ram. But they give him a little bit of exalted position in his own way. But um, uh, yes, the rationality of the Ten Heads is, um, some people say, lots of knowledge. Some In the Mughal paintings, he's shown with one of the heads is that of a donkey. And uh, it's the stubborn mule. So I think that's the metaphor. It's one of those mysteries that art historians are trying to figure out. And I feel, I mean, this again, is that he's trying to show the stubborn donkey, the one who sort of is stubborn, just, just doesn't listen. And that's a quality of Ravan, right? He's, everybody's trying to tell him, make peace. This is not a, not a war worth fighting. People shouldn't die for this. And he's destroying his entire kingdom and his legacy out of just sheer petulance. And when it comes to this aspect of Ravan um, carrying the mountain, and you know, we've discussed this in an early episode as well, but what is this link between Ravan and Shiva? So that's a very interesting point. So um, when the Ramayana was being composed, Shaivism and Vaishnavism were in the early phases, very, very early phases. So initially, it's not a popular, it's a small text written meant for kings, not really in the popular imagination, but it sort of reaches its popular imagination by the 7th and 10th century. And the kings are making these grand wall murals of Ramayana. As I said, in Indonesia, in Prambanan, you have the whole Ramayana shown in this grand temple, um, 8th century, that is 1200 years ago. You have these images in Kailasnath Temple, Kailas Temple in Elora, these panels, you know, first time you have these Ramayana panels. And... Um, when you start looking at these images, um, you start realizing there is this conflict happening between the Shaivas and the Vaishnavas. And Ram is associated with the Vaishnavas. He's an avatar of Vishnu. And an avatar of Vishnu is killing the devotee of Shiva. But then the story gets even more interesting. He's not a good student of Shiva because while he worships Shiva, this, the story is also saying that Shiva is mocking him. He's not able to carry the shivling from the north to the south. He's not able to carry the mountain. He's weak. And in a way, Shiva is the lord of detachment. And our problem with Ravan is attached. He's obsessed. He wants to possess everything. He wants to own Shiva. So that's the character which is being established very beautifully, very graphically. And then Hanuman appears. And over time, by the 10th century AD, Hanuman is associated with Shiva, which is not the original form. He's originally is just this magnificent Vanara. But he is, becomes, in a way, because he is a celibate Brahmachari who wants nothing. Everything about him evokes Shiva, the very powerful ascetic who doesn't, who can fight but doesn't seek anything in return. And that's an amazing thing. Like someone who's very strong, you expect that he'll beat you up and take away your property or just claim... Um, you know, victory. But he does not even interested in victory. And that's a very Shiva sign. Someone who is all-powerful but doesn't value the power. He sort of counters the Shiva devotee, which is Ravan. So you see in the Ramayana a lot of Shiva, Vishnu uh, conflicts emerging. And Shiva playing a very important role both in the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. 
another level is showing good shaivism bad shaivism uh, you know the kings who uh, what is shiva about shiva is about not about kingship in a way because ravan is trying to worship shiva and in those days please remember all these kings are building shiva temples right the kailasa temple is being built in elora the chalukya kings are also building these shiva temples uh, virupaksha temple uh, in karnataka and obviously kingship and shiva pashupata cult is sort of together and there's a rival faction which is vishnu and ram obviously these two models of kingship are also somewhere in this ramayan story finding expression that's the reason it's such an interesting document because it's uh, talking about a period when kingship is being defined and kingship eventually rests with ram eventually not with shiva over time replaced by the vaishnav temples and you find the kings are more like tirupati balaji overshadows virupaksha nathadwara overshadows ekling ji jagannath overshadows uh, um, lingaraj temples so, you know the vaishnava temples become the center of kingship um, over time so i think ramayan in many ways capturing this shifts which is happening I mean, these are all speculations, as I said, but they're fantastic speculations when you think about it. When you correlate text with history, with architecture, and so Ravan sort of comes in that picture. He is the king who is very powerful, but not admired. And I think the uh, writers of that time who are writing these poetries are asking, "What's a good king? What's a good king?" And uh, Ravan is not falling into this category. He's glamorous. and we are being perhaps warned about kings who are look glamorous and seem to be powerful and seem to have everything in the world but are completely petty and ram is the opposite he is in the forest he is with the people he is uh, doesn't care for glamour uh, doesn't uh, is about law is about governance is dealing with difficult moral issues um, tapasvi raja the hermit king the philosopher king that is the ram which emerges and he's the opposite of this glamorous king so you decide whether you want a hermit king or do you want a glamorous king what happens to lanka in the end it's all burnt the people are dead and why because the king wants sita to be with him and it's a very petty issue if you think about it to destroy a kingdom uh, this whole idea of abducting sita is also uh some people say a ruse in order for ravan to be killed by ram and and you know that's his ticket into sort of swarg yeah so these stories emerge when the bhagavata purana and all emerge that is the when the theistic ramayan becomes very prominent so by the uh, 10th 12th century um theism has become a very important the kingship has lost its importance in india and divinity is starting to get more and more importance and karma theory is becoming important and the whole idea of liberation and moksha is becoming important and the idea that god is all powerful and therefore even the villains of the story are actually his devotees and it's called viparita bhakti viparita bhakti is kind of a reverse devotion where you display devotion through enmity through uh, so the opposition is actually favoring you in a way 
because he's secretly in love with you. This idea is there even in the Sufi traditions where the devil or Iblis is said to be the true lover of God. He loves God so much that he refuses to bow before Adam, which is why he hates humanity. So it's an expression of love. And the same thing is with Ravan is sort of, you know, the doorkeepers of Vaikuntha, which is Vishnu's abode, um, were cursed to be born on earth as Rakshasas, Ravan being one of them, the other being Kumbhakarna, and Ravan wants to return to Vaikuntha and therefore is doing everything in his power to uh, irritate and anger Vishnu and one of them what he does is abducts Sita. So there are many such stories. There are stories in the Jain traditions, the idea that Sita is probably a daughter of Ravan. This idea emerges in the Malayali Ramayans. A lot of folk Ramayans which say that Ravan one day, uh, his wife Mandodari gives birth to a child. Oracles say that this daughter is going to kill you. He throws her into the sea and she's caught by the earth and the earth gives her to Janaka and that she's come back to in a way. And the reason for this is because uh, he covets Shiva's consort Shakti as his wife and Shiva's consort uh, Shakti says, okay, I will make sure that you are destroyed. Uh, the woman that you marry will bear the child who will kill you. So one of the reasons why Ramayana is such a popular epic across India is because there are so many layers to it. The layering is what and like any good storyteller knows, a rich story with multiple layers. Um, you know, the Bible is great, famous for that. Uh, Shakespeare becomes famous for that because you can read layers and layers of meaning into them. When you have these epics which are really well-constructed uh, stories by themselves, even the original oldest version of Ramayana is already so refined in its structure. And then you have these layers emerging. The Jain Ramayans, the Buddhist tales, um, then you have the folk Ramayans, the folk uh, stories, the Bhakti literature emerging, artworks which are sort of making you uh, um, think about Ravan's grandeur. I always tell people, when I go to the temple, I'll show you the gods. You know, I will immediately go to see Ravan's statue because he's just grandest of them all. Ten heads, twenty hands. He just gets all the attention. You know, everybody else does tales around him. Uh, it's just a very grand image, especially in a Shiva temple where the Shiva's icon is just a, an iconic stone. He stands out very grand. Everything else sort of pales around him. He's the one in the party who takes the girls away from you and you hate him. And everybody wants to talk to him. Even your wife wants to talk to him. Even your girlfriend wants to talk to him. Your daughter wants to talk to him. And you just don't like him. And you know that he's not a nice guy. He really doesn't care for any of those women. And it's all about him. He's a narcissist. That's what Ravan is about. This glamorous, self-absorbed person, uh, powerful, privileged, who really doesn't care for you, but you are obsessed with him. Sounds like a great Netflix type show for the future. But if you were to like pick more kind interpretations of Ravan where like you say there are more layers, which would you direct people towards? Well, honestly, when you look at Ravan, there is, you know, be, beyond the glamour, there is nothing kind about him. Please understand that he wakes up his brother and the, gets his brother killed. He gets his sons killed. Why? Because he has kidnapped another man's wife and locked her up in his house. So if you look at the story, it's a very dark and disturbing story about a man who lets his brother die, who lets his sons die. And I see these young men who are obsessed with Ravan and I'm like, uh... and I'll have these, my friends who are, you know, 
traditionally Ravan is worshipped because he has got a gotra. He has got a Brahmanical lineage. But they, my friends will say, you know, we have to do this because he's lineage. But there's nothing nice about him at all. It's a classic case of a privileged man who is respected for having privilege, but not having the humility to realize, no wisdom. There is no wisdom here. So there is very difficult to find something good about him. He kills his brothers. I mean, think about him as a relationship. Would you want him as a father? No. He was going to get you killed. Do you want him as a brother? No. He's going to get you killed. Do you want him as a king? No. He's going to kill your, destroy your kingdom. See the dichotomy. And I think that's what makes him really fascinating. He's the devil in a way, the closest you get to the devil in the Indian traditions because we don't have this tradition of a devil. It's charming, beautiful, and he's going to destroy, but you'll adore him even at the moment when you are dying. There's also a religious side to him, right? His deep tapasya that he does is also what sort of people come close to him. Tapasya is like a hardworking person who gets success. So tapasya is hard work. We, but for whom? It's for him. It's not for the well-being of the world or for Lanka or for his wife or his children. It's like a women doing vrats, right? They do all these vrats. They do it for the family. They don't do it for them. They do it with love and affection because for the husband, for the children, it's always for, they're never doing it for themselves. Tapasya is basically hard work, effort that you put in. And yeah, that's admirable to see someone working hard, um, you know, to see politicians working very hard to become politicians for their own pleasure. <laughs> you know, they are not interested in governing you. They're interested in their power. So, you know, it's like very sad when I see, uh, you know, an actor working. Oh, he works so hard. I said, yeah, he's going to be a star. He's, how are you benefiting from it? And I think that's the heart of Indian thought. They always say, check, why are you doing it? For whom are you doing it? You know, these are very, very important questions. You know, the Buddhist tradition is there's something called a Lankavatara Sutra where it's a Mahayana text where Buddha travels to Lanka, meets the Rakshasas and talks to Ravana and tells him about detachment. Does Ravan hear this? No, he doesn't. But of course, he listens to everything and he memorizes everything and he gives great lectures on detachment. Is he detached? No. Shiva Bhakta, great Shiva Bhakta. Does Shiva own anything? Does Shiva have any property? No, Shiva doesn't have any property. What about Ravan? Well, he is the other extreme. Meri patni, meri patni, tumhari patni bhi meri patni. So your wife is also my wife. Your property is also my property. So when Hanuman goes to Ranka and he watches him in the bed and there's this erotic description of Ravan in his uh, private chambers and he's surrounded by women and he, they're very clear these women are wives of other men. So he's this attractive man that women leave their husbands to be with him. Now, this is very interesting. And really, if you have to contrast Ravan with Krishna, because Krishna is also in the Rasalila. There is constant thing about him, women leaving their husbands to come to him. But in the entire story, Ravan is the pleasure taker. While in the Krishna stories, it's the women who are the pleasure takers. He exists for them. And I think this is the key idea. The key idea is your great hero. Is hero for whom? And who is the beneficiary of your actions? And I think that's the conversation that is there. It's consistent in Indian thought. Ramayana, what is Ram doing things for? Is Ram ambitious? Ram is not ambitious at all. He is a king because he is the eldest son of the royal family, not because he wants to be king. 
Is Krishna ambitious? There is no ambition in Krishna. So this idea of ambition doesn't exist in the gods. They exist in demons. And that's something that is repeatedly told in our scriptures. That the gods exist to help you out, to enable you, to empower you. The demons are not. So decide who the gods and demons are in your life. Because are they empowering you? Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at typodcast at timesinternet.in.